Yama. Welcome to Blackademia, a podcast of yarns with First Nations academics of these lands now commonly referred to as Australia. I'm your host, Amy Tunig. I'm a Gamilaroi woman, and I begin by paying my respects to elders past and present, and to the lands on which this podcast is recorded and streamed. Listeners are advised that this podcast, its associated website and social media presence may contain the voices and or images of First Nations people who have since passed. Discretion is advised. This is episode two of season one, and joining me today is Professor Chris Matthews. Chris is from the Kwandamooka people and is passionate about connecting culture and mathematics to transform mathematics education for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander learners. Chris holds a PhD in Applied Mathematics and is currently a Senior Curriculum Officer for ACARA, Associate Dean Indigenous Leadership in the Science Faculty at the University of Technology, Sydney, and the Chair of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Mathematics Alliance. Yama, Chris, thanks for joining us on Blackademia. Thank you very much. Your official bio is very impressive, uh, but before we get into your academic role, could you please introduce yourself in terms of who's your mob and can you tell me a bit about your family life? Oh, you said in my bio that I was from the Kwandamooka people. Um, so what that really means is we're actually a group of about three clans, which is the Nunaka, Nugi and Gurumpal people, and we constitute the area around sort of uh, Morton Bay, which is on the coast from Brisbane. Um, and uh, we did get um, native title, which is where the, one of the, I think, the first mobs to get such near a major city like Brisbane mm. um, to, you know, prove to the courts that we have continuing continuing connection to our country, which is uh, one of those insane things about the system. Yeah. Um, but we did that as a people and we've, we're still working through that, even though we've had determination for a while. So tell me a bit about your family life. Have you got a partner, I, children, carers, yeah, responsibilities? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so I've, um, I've got a wife, my wife is uh, Catherine Joyce. Um, we've got four children. Wow. Um, my oldest is uh, 19 um, and he's studying animation at QUT, which I'm very proud of. Amazing. Um, I'm proud of him anyway, whether he's yeah. studying or not. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but he's doing really great work there. Um, and, he, and, I, and one thing I'd actually have, always have for my children is that, you know, I, I actually can set them, I don't really care if you go to university. But what I do care is that you do something with your life that uses your capacity to create and be creative. You know, and that's one of the things that I really, really sort of said to my kids. And I don't know how many times, but that was the sort of messages I'm trying to send to my kids. Um, and and if, my second oldest is Lily, and she's um, 16. And she does these amazing sort of uh, makeup artist stuff. So she's right into makeup, but she does, you know, she goes right into how to apply it, you know, so she's got a little YouTube channel um, where she does that. Um, it's, and it's really, what she does is really impressive, you know, in that way. Um, my my uh, third child is Neve. Uh, Neve is 13, just finishing off her first year at high school. Um but she has always had a passion for animals ever since she was little. So um, I suspect she's going to be one of those um, people that will have a you know bit of property somewhere with a thousand animals on it. <laughs> <laughs> Whether she has a partner or not, I'm not quite sure. But <laughs> yeah, she'll have animals. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she may study veterinary science or something like that. You know, that's what I think she'll probably head off eventually. But you know, you know. 
that's her passion is that everything to do with with animals yeah um and and rosie i think she she's sort of um she's she's a talented young girl she's she's 10 years old she um she loves drawing and she loves writing stories so I was, i'm not quite sure where she's going to go with that but um but you know very talented mm. that's amazing so you've got you're well and truly still in the thick of it when it comes to parenting um, with four kids between the ages of 10 and 19, and you've just become a professor. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That I is... think it's inciting myself a little bit. <laughs> that's so exciting. <laughs> that's a bit crazy doing all that, but anyway. <laughs> well, how did you come to do that? So you've got a PhD in applied mathematics and... Um, you know, as someone who gets sweaty palms thinking about doing maths, but has I've had the pleasure of, of sitting in an audience when you talk about maths in the way that you do, and it doesn't feel scary when you talk about maths, and, and it, it sounds understandable, and it's so amazing. Uh, but I would love to know why maths, and how do you come to do a PhD in maths? Oh, that's a pretty long story. Um uh, how long do you got? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the, the story basically is that, um, and I'll try and give you a short version, is that my schooling life, for, as same with a lot of Aboriginal um, people, I think, has been marred with racism, mm. you know, spasmodically, I'd say, throughout my years. It wasn't continual. I mean, the, the effects is continual, but the episodes are spasmodic. You know, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it's happened happened to me since I was probably in about grade four all, all the way through. So, you, so as a very young child, you are dealing with a whole lot that most kids don't deal with. Um, I mean, I think some kids deal with it in a very variety of ways, depending on what they what who they are in life. Um, but this at the time when I was going through school in the seventies and eighties, um, you know. Racism was just commonplace, really. Mm. It was just a view that it was. And I, I grew up in a place called Toowoomba, which is west of Brisbane. Um, and, you know, for want of a better word, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people have similar views to Pauline Hanson mm. up there. So it was it was very common to, for, for me to, to be experiencing racism from teachers as well as students. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing that really hurt was that the teachers, I think the people in authority, yeah. more than the students, because they then justified the views of the students. You know? yeah. So if the teacher's doing it, then students can do it also. Um, I was generally the only, I was the only Aboriginal caster on my peers at the, at the time when I went through through, through schooling. Um, so it was a very lonely experience in that sense. Um, I will, will qualify that though, because I did have a good group of friends and Generally, we were sort of like the outcasts of the school, I think. <laughs> you know, I had the only, one of my friends was the only other black fellow there, and he was a Malaysian Indian fellow. You know, we became friends very quickly. Yeah. As soon as he came to school, you know, I saw he was a bit isolated, so I went straight over to him and talked to him, and we had friends ever since. Yeah. Um, you know, we had the principal's son, you know, <laughs> the, the, the overweight, rich kid, you know. Um, it was almost <laughs> like, a, like, like a, a, an episode of... Uh, um, I know, or some sort of sitcom. It was, yeah. it was almost like that. Um, but we had all this this good group of friends like that, and I still have friends with some of them today. Yeah. Um, the uh, um, but the interesting thing is, though, I think we're the more interesting group. Mm. You know, and I think, and towards the end of year twelve, more people gravitated towards us than what you know than the uh, the the usual cool type group that are pandering into stereotypes themselves. You know, yeah. to try and you know be cool within themselves. Um, so anyway, um, 
my the thing that I escaped, my escape here, the reason I'm saying all this, my escape was to actually do a lot with computing and mathematics interest, you know, which is a bit bizarre. The reason is because I never really liked the history and geography stuff because a lot of the issues yeah. raised in those, those, those areas, so I avoided doing well on them. Um, I didn't even try. Um, English, well, I had to do, but it can be a similar thing. Yeah. Um, because the, and even our religious education classes, there was stuff that was, you know, so there's things in all these different classes that, that you would just, I just wanted to avoid. Um, and in some ways I sort of hid in the objectivity of science and mathematics at that time. Um, not that I agree with that notion now, but at that time it was actually a safe place for me because people didn't talk about cultural maths or cultural people at all, sorry. Yeah. Um, at that time it was all just about maths and science. Um, so I could hide in there. That's that, you know. Wow. And I was lucky that I was also, um, as a child, very interested in science fiction. So I loved my Star Trek and my Star Wars, you know. Um, I'm old enough to be, you know, the, one of those kids that saw the first Star Wars at the drive-in, you know. <laughs> Mine was blown ever since, you know. <laughs> um, so that, there was a sense there that I was, you know, really interested in the way computers work and, and I and, – and, and, in my early teenage years, um, you know, computers started to be something that was brought into the household and through the Commodore 64s and things like that. Um, so I spent a lot of time teaching myself how to just program computers and understand them, you know. And then from then on, there was there was actually in my maths classes where we started doing the connection between solving maths equations and using computing programming at the same time. And I just lapped it up. We had a textbook that I just went through the textbook and went way ahead of the teacher. I just, I just lapped it up, you know. So I had this weird obsession with computing, um, this obsession to knowing how to do what we would call mathematical modelling now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I was hell-bent on trying to do something like that at university. Um, so my escape out of Toowoomba was to go to university too, so I yeah. was on that pathway. So I, I hid and did all those things knowing that I could go somewhere and get out. So it's not a good education in that sense. The driver isn't a good thing, I don't no. think. No. Because you have to deal with a lot of that stuff later on. Yeah. But it did But it did give me – I mean, I, I often talk about this as, as you know, as an Aboriginal student in those sort of situations, you do sit on a knife's edge and you could fall either which way, you know. Yeah. You can find something that will get you through. Yeah. Or you can just say, you know – um, put your finger up to the world and, you know, F you all and do whatever because no one's going to give a shit anyway, you know, and and that's the reality of it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, we know from, like, even today's data that that racism from teachers hasn't stopped, you know, in a big, um, a mm. big study across Victoria and New South Wales that came out not that long ago, it, it showed that one in five First Nations children are experiencing racism from a teacher. And, uh, and so we know that, that that's still very much something that's in the present day, but there's something so beautiful about nerdy little child Chris finding maths to be such an escape. And look at you now, you've turned it into not only an incredible career in terms of you know achieving these markers that do tend to be very highly valued like getting into uni but now you're really working at disrupting the existing the existing system when it comes to maths which I love it was just so refreshing when I sat in one of your workshops and I I heard you explain these these complex 
ideas and ways of understanding numbers and patterns. And, and I just felt like I, I wasn't anxious. I felt like I understood what you were saying. Um, so can you tell me a little bit, like when, when you chose to go to university, were you the first in your family to go to uni? Oh, I had an older sister and she was our first in our family. Wow. Um, a couple of years older than me. So she went to UQ and studied zoology. Oh, um, wow. Mm, That's amazing. Um, family of high achievers. <laughs> and she actually didn't follow through in science and her career. So she, she got a, a job in public service and she actually worked for Robert Tickner, who was the Minister of Aboriginal Affairs in the uh, 90s. Um, so she sort of got to that level in the public service. Um, but after that, she actually chose to become a mother, which was, you know, a good choice. You know, she, yeah. she and her husband had a high-paying job, and she just said, "No, nah, I'm out. I'm becoming a mother." So she she's got a beautiful daughter Emma, and she's um, yeah, she's done other things and interesting things. Like she just picks things like um, at one point she was binding books because she wanted to learn how to bind books. <laughs> oh, mad! <laughs> I like that. That sounds good. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Exactly. when when you you knew you wanted to go to uni. And you saw it as a way out of that town and something that you felt good doing because it had been an escape. Did you ever think that you would then be working on the education system that you'd gone through? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, actually, take one step back. I mean, actually, what, what I was so good at the maths I was doing that um, uh, there was a point where a lot of the, well, the students that it was, a lot of my peers at, at high school um, wasn't understanding the maths, particularly with the one relating to computers. So um, they asked me to hold a class for them. Wow. So I actually stood up there in front of, like the teacher, they sat there, was about 30 kids from that same class, and I explained all the stuff. Oh, I wish you were in my class. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I suppose the, the thing there that... that that stuck with me was that um, one of the kids, well, several of them come up to me and said, you need to become a teacher, you know. You know and, I, and it sort of stuck in the back of my head, but I was too embedded with him wanting to know more about this mathematical modelling world, yeah. And, and when going to university, there was not a course about that because in, in uh, I finished high school in 88, so um, that was the sort of the IT boom. So a lot of the computer courses was all about IT, and that was mainly to do with business and information technology, you know, so the databases where you – it wasn't what I wanted to do at all, you know. I found that a boring version of programming, mm, you know, yeah. from my point of view. Um, I wanted to get into this thing called um, mathematical modelling, but there was no course to do it. So I just picked up any maths course I could and any computer course I, I did during my undergrad uh, and end up getting a degree in science and, and computers or something something like that. Um, it wasn't until um, I was actually trying, actually after I did a degree, I was actually trying to find a job and I couldn't find one. Um, and one of my white mates from university, you know, who knew the system because, you know, did know the system, Yeah. said, you know, you should consider doing honours. And I said, what the hell is honours? I have no idea what that is. Yeah. Um, so I, I plucked, plucked up the courage and walked in with my transcript to one of our old mass lecturers Oh, sorry. Well, he's not old, really. But, but <laughs> I had. Um, it, and he uh, went through my transcript and he said, you could just scrape in doing honours, you know, because there, there was a few parts of my transcript wasn't too good, but um, he was happy with my results in the maths courses um, and the computer courses. So he said, yeah, we'll, we'll give you a crack. 
and and the, the the topic that I was doing then, which is the same on a different my PhD, was actually looking at modelling water flow through soils and to do with um, uh, protecting groundwater systems um, from waste dumps, really. So you're actually designing a cover over the waste so that water diverts away from the waste instead of going through it. It's a, it's a fundamental idea. But anyway, what this was all about really was the, my first project in mathematical modelling. You know, um, So I just, without even thinking about it, only people who talked to me about it me later, because I used to go to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander unit a lot, and, and I'd be just in there on the whiteboard, and I'd be writing all this stuff on the whiteboard, and I'd be, you know, going through all this stuff, and people would walk in and go, what the hell is Chris doing? You know, but I, but I was so focused, I didn't even realise what I was doing, you know. It was only after people told me, you know, they'd never seen anybody so, you know, focused on one thing. Um, so I ended up getting, you know, because of that focus, first-class honours in, in that time, um, and the, which enabled me to do a PhD. And my, um, I was actually had a scholarship from honours, so I had to go and work in the public service for, for a little while, um, trying to decide whether that's something I'd, I would continue doing because my sister was already there mm-hmm. as well doing it. Um, and, you know, racism reared its ugly head again. You know, I saw a lot of stuff about the system that I didn't really like, yeah. um, which is probably good for my, my own education. Yeah. I even saw a person who, I won't say the name, who was actually really high up, Aboriginal woman, really high up in an apartment, who applied for a job in the department I was in. Um, it was advertised as a permanent position, but when she wanted them, made it a contract position. And then, and, you know, and then they, 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 then the hierarchy continued not to give her the work she was supposed to be doing. Like she was supposed to, um, um, you know, do a high level talk at one point. But they said not. They gave the speech to some other person. It wasn't even in the section that she was running to do it, you know. And she she even said to me, I was walked into her office one day. She said to me, you know, I'm really losing some confidence. And she was someone who was really high up in the department, you know. So this this sort of stuff was still going on. Um, I mean, it's going on then. Probably still goes on now. Um, yep, it does. But, uh, <laughs> so that, that was a really big lesson for me in that sense so yeah so i suppose in some ways i in some ways i think i sort of ran back to my little safety blanket <laughs> <laughs> and then go back and went back to do this phd so i went back to the same supervisor I had from honors and said you know i'll do this phd now i'm ready to do it um and that was a pretty long journey my phd actually how long did it take if you don't mind me asking uh it was in the end six years oh that's um, not too bad um yeah you know, but in that time I met Kath, you know, we started having children as well. So there's all yeah. this stuff in your life that you, you get involved in. Yeah. I was um, also uh, struggling with, uh, I suppose, my supervisor relationship with some at some firm. I'm still, I'm very good friends with them now, but some, you know, a lot of ways I'm struggling with my supervisor relationship. Yeah. Um, which made it a bit more difficult. Uh, yeah, but eventually, I, you know, I got through and got a PhD in applied mathematics. What did you want a PhD for? I had no idea when I was doing it, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> in some respects. Um, I knew that I... Well, at one point there, I, I just needed to know I had to complete it because I had one baby, my son, Tam, and then I also had Lily on the way, you know, and I knew, I knew I had to get a job. I knew I had to complete this and see whether they'd give me an academic job or some sort of job at the university so I can support my family. That was my, one of my biggest drivers to actually finish. 
Yeah, wow. And, and, and also, it was at the time when, um, well, the difficulty having my supervisor relationship, there was an argument around the way I was approaching the, the solution to a problem. Um, one of my supervisors sort of agreed with my approach, and the other person sort of didn't. And that sort of had, had, had sort of stressed out in this big long journey and trying all these other different ways of doing it, you know, when I felt like I had a good enough solution for my PhD. Uh, but so in the end, I mean, my son was almost, it's come to the point where my son was going to be born. And um, I sort of, I actually took leave and, and, and my, my wife grew up in Byron Bay, so she had a, her parents' house, her mother's house up there. So we went and stayed up there. Unfortunately, her mother had passed away, so it was only just us up there. And um, it was at that point when I was staying up in Byron, Tam was um, born. Um, and then, uh, you know, I had to finish his PhD. So I basically sat down without my supervisor and said, well, if I was going to do this, how would I do this? And that's when I started just writing it all up and I just started sending in chapters. And um, at that point, that really boosted my confidence because I knew for myself I could actually do this, you know. I, was, I think I was a bit reliant still on the approval of my supervisors where I switched that mindset not intentionally necessarily, but I had the switch of mindset where I knew that I could do it because I was, I just, I, I took the initiative and I, in some ways, the, had the courage to do it and send it in. Because yeah. at that point, I, you know, if they sent back and said, this is all crap, then I knew that it was you know, going to be a bit of a disaster. <laughs> yeah. But, but what, what uh, you know, and I, you know, and in your own mind, you always have those doubts, you know, this is going to be crap, you know, they're not going to like Oh, this. yeah, yeah. You know. You know, it's all, all that stuff goes through your head. And then the interesting thing was when I got back, it was just that there was only nothing but praise with what I did. So so I knew that I was capable, you know. So where, does, um, where did that tension come from? So was it that the supervisor, they were set in their ways of doing things or were they not seeing what you were trying to communicate until you actually sent them the drafts? Um, they were set in their ways of doing things. Yeah. And I, even to the end, I think the one of the my supervisors still didn't like it, even though he was <laughs> sort of accepting it. <laughs> um, but, I mean, like, one good thing about science and maths, particularly in the paradigm that, that works in universities, is that if you're showing the results, you're showing the results, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting thing having to send your work to someone to have it read because it feels so personal. Um, mm. I hate sending draft chapters to my supervisors and one of the best things for me is I regularly see my supervisors on campus because we work in the same space and so it gets to the point where you can't avoid them forever. <laughs> so you just have to send them things. So the people who might be listening in, for Mob who are outside of the academy, because you mentioned saying that you didn't know what honours were and I'm first in my family to a finished high school. And so then when I went into uni and I finished my first degree, I got sent a letter saying, do you want to do honours? And I didn't know what that meant. And so I just ignored the letter because I was very busy and tired and working and just trying to get done with that degree. Um, and so I just didn't do it because I, I didn't have the time and the energy and the capacity to go in. And also it felt really embarrassing to be at the end of a degree and then to be sent this letter saying, oh, you know, you're invited to do honours 
And then it didn't explain what honours were. And so that made me feel like, oh, this is something that we're meant to know. And so I'm embarrassed that I don't know it. And now that I'm, you know, I've got my master's and I'm doing a PhD and I work in the academy, I think, of course I didn't know what honours were. That if you Google what are honours, you're going to get a lot of responses that are around this idea of honour and loyalty and things that are not academic specific. And so maybe for someone who's listening and going like, WTF are they talking about? What's honours? Do you want to just tell me like briefly what an honours is or what like, and then briefly like what a PhD is? I think it hasn't changed too much since I did honours, but basically an honours year is something you do after your bachelor's degree. So a bachelor's degree is what, you know, people mostly go to university for and they usually around three to four years yeah. and you come out with a bachelor, which is very gender specific. <laughs> As opposed to a spinster. <laughs> so... Once you get your bachelor, you can do you have two you have choices. You know, you can go into a master's and that will take you two years. And then if you get a certain um, uh, if you get through your masters at a and I think they're still ranked your masters, then from that ranking of your masters you can then enter a PhD. Um, so masters is usually two years as I said, and it's a research base, so it has to be something around a project. So honours years is almost like a, it's what I see it as almost like a fast track to a PhD. You know, yeah. it, it's like um, you do an extra year of your degree where, so instead of two years, you do one year, but it's an intense coursework thesis and, and also research work. So you do a, a coursework and then also you write a th- th- thesis at an end around your project. Um, generally, a good honours project um, program will have your coursework adding towards your project, um, but that's not always the case. Yeah. Um, um, but what what you're ranked on is what you produce in your thesis at the end, and also what your average is on the subjects that you do. So if you you have to maintain a distinction, high distinction average in your coursework, but also do the same within your thesis. Um, to actually attain a first-class honours. Yeah. Um, so people who don't know the rankings, you have high distinction, distinction, credit and pass. So you've got to maintain a distinction, high distinction, which is usually generally above 80%. Yeah. Within all your coursework, yeah. Um, also, just to be clear too, your thesis is usually marked by external people from your university. Yeah. Um, so people who's in the similar field read what you've done and decide whether that's worthy of 80 or 90 percent whatever it is yeah yeah so when you're doing a phd basically this is your first big project so you're taking three years to do a much bigger project it can be an extension of your honors program or your master's project um and then they generally supposed to take about three years for a phd but as i said i took six years but that's okay (laughs) um and i don't know i suppose the 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 difference there is that for your honours, you're just demonstrating that you can do a project in research yeah. in the area. And the distinction for a PhD is that you have to do original work in the area. Yes. Yeah. So that's a real distinction. Yes. Uh, um, yeah. Well said. Yeah. So when you finish your thesis and your PhD, it's usually marked by people you know, of high standing in your field as well. You know, where an honours, you don't necessarily have to. It could be, um, you know, just people in the field. That's fine. There's nothing to downgrade them, but, you know, they're usually looking for people of high standing to mark a PhD. Uh, 
So one of the, my, my markers was a, a, one of the professors at Cornell University. You know? Wow. Um, so that was – really pleased with his comments too because he gave me the best comments. Amazing. <laughs> like everybody else's. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would feel very validated by that. I think <laughs> – you know, when, when you grow up in a household, like I was always encouraged to go to university, but no one in my family actually knew what that meant. You know, like it's great to say to someone, yes, you can do anything you want. But then when it comes time to doing it, to then actually support them, you know, what, what, how do I structure an essay? A what? You know, how do I reference this appropriately? I don't know what you're talking about. You know, <laughs> um, this idea of articles and scholarly and all of that, but Cornell and Harvard, these are terms we know from pop culture. And so I think I, I can I can really feel the, if, if someone from uh, an Ivy League or, you know, one of these college referency type universities ends up marking mine, I can even though it's totally illogical, I, I totally am going to be able to love that because then I can say to my parents, yeah, that's right. It's from this space that you're familiar with from movies. They said I did good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it, isn't it? In being a black academic and coming from communities where we've always had education and, and a love of knowledge and research and understanding the world, but we're talking about navigating systems which are very foreign to our ways of doing and being even even the fact that you have to do it yourself, like individually, you know, there's no team option. Um, that I think is is something that would be great to see disrupted. Um, and so you've, you've done your PhD and now you're absolutely smashing it and providing amazing resources, which I regularly um, direct my teaching students towards. Um, can you tell us, so you're now a professor. What does it mean to be a professor? The, I think someone recently explained to me that a professor is someone who is engaged in leadership. So how would you describe it? Well, that's the role I took when I took the professor role. I'm new to being a professor, so I'm learning at this point in time. But nice. it really is a leadership position within the university. Um, the actual official title is I'm Associate Dean um, of Indigenous Leadership and Engagement for the science faculty. So UTS is an interesting institution, and it's one of the reasons that I decided to go there is that they have actually started pulling in a lot of Aboriginal academics from mm. across Australia. And um, Michael McDaniels has really been trying to shape the foundation of the institution. Um, I was heavily involved in a lot of uh, Aboriginal initiatives in my old university. Uh, but I, but most of the time you're convincing people to do that. Yeah. 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 Where Michael has managed to set a foundation where the question is not a question of, you know, you know, will you do this? It's a question of we must do this. And now we're in the space of how do we do this? So the fact that that has already shifted to the space of how do we do this is what actually got me more interested because um, I don't have to hit my head against a brick wall convincing people to do things. Yes. Um, yeah, so that's one of the reasons I took out the role to sort of play in that house space. Um, as you said, I was the also, I'm also chair of the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Mathematics Alliance, and now one of our goals is to have all Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander students successful in mathematics. And to do that, we really need that to transform the maths education that we deliver in, in Australia. Yeah. So part of me doing this too is to actually um, work with an institution to contribute towards that. Um, and hopefully be the leading light for other institutions to do something similar. Uh, so it is sort of marrying up with my other objectives. Yep. That's why I took up that leadership role. 
Um, but yeah, so my um, I've only taken up a one day a week, which is a bit bizarre because you're leader in an institution, and I'm only working one day a week. <laughs> only only see me for blocks, so I'm not quite sure how people are taking that yet. Um, I've uh, I'll I'll see what happens over time, I suppose. But I suppose my leadership style, if you want a better word, they're still really developing. I'm not saying that I'm an expert here. Yeah. But the style that I like is I want to enroll people in a vision. Um, so one of the things that I'm going to try and achieve immediately is looking at transforming the curriculum within the science fa- faculty. Fantastic. Um, there are already stuff happening. Yeah. So, you know, we can always talk about the stuff that's already happening. But what I, I want people to, to discuss first is a clear understanding of why we're doing it. Mm. Um, because I think too many times in people's minds, this stuff just gets put down to being, oh, we've got to cater for Aboriginal people. It's just being politically correct or yeah. you know, there's no real meaning behind it. Yeah. Um, like but a I want pity to act. really share, develop a shared vision where it does actually have meaning. Because yeah. if it doesn't have meaning, then it's not going to be meaningful to, to the students and have a positive student experience. Yeah. So, so that's one of my first steps is to enrol in that enroll people in that vision and what it really really means to have this that's so exciting i think there's there's such an incredible body of evidence of, of incredible research which shows what a value add including these ways of being and knowing and seeing can be for all students and i i do see that 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 is one of the misconceptions and one of the resistances we face as black academics is that too many people think it's it's just mixing a little bit in because, oh, we have to, because, oh, the poor Aboriginals, you know, they're being really loud about it. And when it comes to education, we are, we don't do well in the existing system because of the nature of the system, but actually a lot of people don't do well in that system. It's not a great system. It's not built thinking about the whole child or the whole learner and, when it comes to including these things that you're talking about including, actually it doesn't harm anyone. It helps everyone, the, all of the students benefit. And this idea, you know, like with the, in New South Wales, we've got the Aboriginal education policy and it comes down almost to one core principle and that's that it's everyone's business. It's for everybody. And I love the work that you're doing so much because, well, for a couple of reasons, broadly and altruistically and community focused because it makes so much sense and I think that it's going to improve the experience of maths for all learners and then on a personal note because I have a nine-year-old who really wants to be an astrophysicist and right now to try and encourage her in this area that I know so little about that requires a strong mathematical understanding I get clammy hands thinking about it like yeah no I really you have got your back babe um but I know that I can at least read your things and look at your talks and then I can you know perhaps be prepared to help her and support her at home but I think a lot of our parents and carers feel like this right this wanting to support our kids and and the children in our communities and the young adults and and older adults in um our communities to engage in these things, but it's so hard when it's all written up in languages and, and approaches that, that don't make sense. Um, so I love what you're doing. Yeah, but, but going back to parenting, just, just my little view here. Yeah. I think it's not a bad thing that you you can't help your kids with everything mm, mm, at all, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think there's gonna there's a real shift for us too because a lot of us as Blackfellas are, are professionals, yeah. know, which is a big shift from, yeah. you know, last 30 years yeah 
Um, we know more about education yes. than what they expect. Yeah. Um, and there is a tendency that you want to just help your kids because you didn't have that help yourself. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. And you want them to do the best that they can. Yeah. Um, one, I suppose one thing that I've that I know with Tim is that I, you know, he's doing animation. Um, even though there's a commonality in sort of knowing a bit about programming and a bit about the maths that's behind animation, that's only a very, very small portion. The stuff that he does, I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and I've said to him, look, you know, and, and the things that I really, really like doing in, in supporting him is just, can I just show me what you've done? <laughs> so, <laughs> so amazing the way he makes things move across the, you know, it could be something like he, he did a, he did an animation of a, um, of a sugar bag, you know, full of sugar. Yeah. And then had to make that have a personality and walk across the thing. You know, and yeah. What what he does is just really brings that whole thing to life, and it's just really amazing. So you can actually give that support in a whole range of ways. You know. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be the knowledge holder. <laughs> yeah. You know. You it. Yes. And it. I guess when you consider the things that that those of us who are in this space professionally have done, and for many of us, we never saw you know, a black fella do it before us. I've been thinking a lot about that saying, you know, you can't be what you can't see, but we might not have seen Murray professors, but we did see leadership and we did see great listening skills and we did see inquisitive people. Like I know, like you can't get anything past the aunties in my community and family because they know how to ask the right questions. You know, they'll, the head will go to the side and they'll ask you a question and you know, you're done if you're trying to, you know, get it, get it over when you're a teenager or whatever. And I think those skills translated so well then, even though I didn't have someone to be like, Oh, this is, you, you can read, you can learn about, you know, how to write an essay in a book, but there's so much knowledge and, and guidance that we get from our communities that um, you can't get out of a book. And uh, which leads me to my, my final question that are my questions. The last couple yeah. of questions are from Twitter. Um, so what's your favourite part of being a First Nations academic or a black academic? Oh, good question. I mean, I had a, a bit of a painful sort of... Um, relationship with academia <laughs> love hate love hate relationship <laughs> I, I love the fact that it's not like a regular job mm. where you have someone that's looking over you nine to five yeah um obviously you have your performance reviews yeah uh, yearly performance reviews and you got to show what you've been doing but in general you have total control over the way you teach yeah. what you teach yeah to an extent, you got to yeah. follow the course outline, but if, once you get to a certain level, you design in the course outlines anyway. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, what you research and what you do on a day-to-day basis. I mean, that's one of the best things about being academia, um, a black academic. But also, I think the thing that I value more and more over time is that people will listen to you. Yeah. You'll have a voice. And that takes time. It doesn't always happen. Yeah. If, and admittedly, really, one of the other reasons I took on the professor's role because I was sitting in meetings and people would defer to a professor. Mm. <laughs> I got sick of people deferring to professors, particularly when they have no experience working with Aboriginal communities or in yeah. Aboriginal education. Yeah. They still defer to the professor. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and I've had other experiences where I'm given a keynote, uh, asked to do a keynote, I should say. Um, and they would give more time to the professor than me. And I yeah. had to raise and say, why is, she, why is this person having more time 
and I have this amount of time, and I'm supposed to be a keynote. Yeah, know? yeah. And so it's these sort of power plays that, 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 that occur. So admittedly, one of the reasons I took on the professorship is because I wanted to, to say, you can't do that to me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's... Even though I still stood up for myself saying, you can't do that to me. And, it's, and in some ways it's a bit sad, but in some ways I don't know. I don't know. That's the era that's, we live in though, right? Like, <laughs> we, yeah. we've, we've finally got access to these spaces, but there's still those ongoing fights and microaggressions and macroaggressions to, yeah. to get yeah. the stuff out there. Um, so the voice is, to me is very, very yeah. important. I'm trying to make the most of it, you know. I'm, I'm sure I, you know, I'm sure, you know, I'm trying my best. I don't always, always succeed, but I'm always going to try my best. And, and I'm, I, um, I really, I'm not trying to be the voice for our people because no, no individual can. Yeah. Um, but I do put forward everything that I have learned from our people. Yeah. You know, and all the different communities from my own people, my own community, but also all the other different communities I've been to. Yeah. Um, and every, and I make sure that I have permission to talk about certain things. Yeah. Um, and I always bring those things forward. Yeah. Um, because once you sort of come from that knowledge base, you know, that base where you can say, I've experienced this, I know this because I've talked to the people. Yeah. You know, there's not that many people that can deny that, you know. Yeah. Even even an institution that relies on peer review papers with references, you, st- you still find it very difficult within meetings to actually say, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that voice is very, very important to me. Yeah, that's awesome. So... In the lead up to creating this podcast, um, I did float it on Twitter and that is where the seed funding for buying the equipment and whatnot that I'm using right now came from. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but it also helped prompt quite a few questions. So at Alib88 asks, how do you see academic endeavour being of tangible yeah. benefit to our communities? We can do that I one if I you answered, like. I, I think you've answered that one. idea of a voice, I think. Yep. We do offer a voice as long as we aren't saying that we are, you know, the Indigenous leader with the voice. <laughs> the old but, Indigenous uh, leader. Yeah, saying that we are talking about what we understand from our own experiences that will help benefit our communities. I think that is beneficial. But also, um, you know, the in, in the academic endeavour, um, most people, I think, get caught up the fact that we, you know, you just write papers all day. And I know that's important. Um, but I think we got into a point in academia where it's absolutely insane. Mm. Um um, one of my supervisors actually said to me once that you could be one of these academics that pumps out a lot of useless papers yeah. or a few really good papers. Yeah. Unfortunately, the model of a few very good papers doesn't fit within our peer review process no. as much anymore. Um, but I still hold on to that few good papers. Yeah, you know, quality over quantity. Really out, constructed really good papers yeah um that's one way because because what i've come to realize too is those papers inform policy it's insane how they mm. inform policy mm. uh, even though it's gone through many other filters for a guest of policy it still informs policy yeah um and that's one of the things that that we can contribute to but besides all that paper writing and all that sort of stuff the thing that we can do as academics and it's hard in the institution because i don't necessarily value it yeah is to actually work with our communities to bring the benefits of research or the benefits you know, of teaching and learning that universities offer. Um, and it is bound within a certain cultural framework that mm-hmm. we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. But if, if we take on the understandings, then hopefully that we can actually see other ways of dealing with the system. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, those navigation skills yeah, and approaches. Yeah. Um, okay, so maybe one of one of the lighter questions. Um, <laughs> so Scotty Trindle on Twitter asks, "How to start a PhD but decolonially?" Have any tips for Scott? <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably the worst one to ask for that because you know, <laughs> mathematics is bloody colonial and all the through the And I pretty much accepted the framework of mathematics when I was doing things. But actually, to tell you the truth, one of the reasons I did the project I did is because, for me, in my mind, it was a care for country type project. Yeah. Because I was looking at protecting groundwater systems. Yeah. I was looking at it connecting from mining waste and, and also even just the waste that comes from our cities. Yeah. You know, for me, that was a care for country. Yeah. And I suppose that mindset for me was important for me to actually engage in that project. Um, the reason I've actually walked away from my maths career was um, I and went into education was because I really become delusioned with the maths community mm. at that time. Mm. And also the way mathematics is actually used by our system, by by the system here. Yeah. Um, because, it, you know, one, one, you know uh, one question I posed my supervisors when I was actually doing my PhD was, you know, if, if I say theoretically I designed the best cover liner that guaranteed that all the, all the groundwater will be protected, um, wouldn't this be an, a reason then to go and mine Kakadu or go and mine some other place? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because there's more to devastation mining than, than what I was studying, you know? Yeah. Um, and their response to me was, as mathematicians, we don't deal with those questions. That's what the social scientists do. So that that then showed me how much science and mathematics just doesn't even think about what they're doing. Yeah, you know, right. They just they just all they think about is that yeah we can do this and this is how you do it. You know, not exactly what we're doing and how it affects society and environment and so forth. Yeah. And I think that's one of the limitations of academia. Yeah. Yeah. And, but as, as Aboriginal academics, we can look at how we then change that. And what I did is I moved to math education to explore more deeply what maths is, yeah. what it means for us Aboriginal people. And that's yeah. where, and it fits better, much better within education. But through my professorship, maybe it'll, if it, if it filter into the other part of universities as well. Yes. So I hope that answers Scott's question. <laughs> yes, I'm not sure how uh, how serious a response he anticipated, but that was an excellent response because <laughs> that's, that's a great point, you know, that, that being able to, you know, a PhD can have more than a purpose of becoming, you know, being able to put doctor in front of your name. It can be, and it and arguably should be, something that is of benefit to country, of benefit to your community, and that, sometimes does mean asking questions that people don't appreciate you asking or pushing back when they say, no, we don't talk about that here, Um, you know, and that's then people like yourself and like the other incredible black academics who are out there who are asking those questions, especially when they put those questions to paper, you know, that, that puts a little bit more groundwork that we can then push it a bit further as we come in and push through as well. So I really appreciate that. Um, well, it has been so fantastic talking to you, Professor Matthews. Um, <laughs> and I greatly appreciate your work. And, um, yes, I just wanted to say thank you so much and thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge with us and for the awesome work you're doing as a black academic. Thank you. 
That's all we have time for on this week's episode, but if you'd like to learn more about Professor Matthews and his work, head to the Blackademia website, which is www.blackademia.com. And if you'd like to see the incredible makeup creations of Professor Matthews' daughter Lily, head over to her Instagram, which is at L-I-L-Y underscore underscore Matthews. Tune in next week to hear a yarn with the oh-so-deadly associate professor Sandy O'Sullivan. Until next time, yalloo!